morning, everyone. Today's Bible reading is taken from John chapter 19, verses 16 to 30. If you're using the Blue Bibles, that's page 765. John chapter 19, verses 16 to 30. Starting at verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write, The King of the Jews but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This ends the reading of God's word. Right. Good morning, everybody. Um, Michael, in his prayers, made mention of Innocent in Malawi, and I got a WhatsApp from him yesterday just um, informing me of the situation there. And it seems that um, at the moment, as far as they can tell, I think 140,000 houses have been swept away. Uh, 660,000 people uh, have been displaced. More than 1,200 people have lost their lives. 
Um, so, uh, but, the, but as far as they're concerned, they are so thankful to the Lord for the aid that St. Barnabas was able to send their way because their crops were swept away in the cyclone. And uh, the fact that we've been able to send a little bit of aid, <coughs> excuse me, means that um, they're going to be able to buy maize for food. They won't starve. So praise the Lord for his goodness in ministering to them. And I'll keep you informed with the situation there as it continues to change. Won't you please keep your Bible open um, at John 19. <clears throat> well, gracious Heavenly Father, you, you have promised to be with your church, watching over us, protecting us, providing all that we need for life and godliness. We thank you that you know our past <coughs> and understand it completely, that you know our needs and are able to meet them adequately, that you know our destiny and are able to prepare us for it perfectly. So please come to us now and speak to us by your spirit and through your word that each one of us might be conscious that we're listening to the voice of the Lord Jesus calling us now to follow him into the future. In his name we ask it. Amen. <clears throat> one of the uh, best-loved hymns in the English language was written by a man called Isaac Watts. And uh, we're going to be singing it uh, after the sermon. And here's how it begins. He says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Now that sentence is telling us what the cross of Christ meant to Isaac Watts personally. So what did it mean? Well, someone has estimated that in today's money, uh, Isaac Watts' net worth at his death was around five million US dollars. But uh, compared to the cross of Christ, all his wealth meant less than nothing to him. He wrote 750 hymns, and he's been called the godfather of English hymn writing. So he had a great deal to be proud of. But compared to the cross, Isaac Watts took no pride in his achievements. So friends, what goes through your mind when you consider the cross of Christ? Because I think it's fair to say that today people think about the cross in several different ways. Some people think about it aesthetically. Uh, maybe they wear a gold cross on a chain around their neck. It's a, it's a piece of jewellery to them. It's nothing more. Uh, so a couple of years ago, a friend of ours was in a jewellery shop where he overheard a lady saying to the shop assistant, I want to buy a cross for my daughter, just a plain gold cross without the funny little man on it. In other words, her interest in the cross was just as a piece of jewellery, no more. Other people think about the cross 
sentimentally. Uh, They come to church occasionally. Uh, They know a bit about Jesus. But when they read about his death, they see it as a, a horrible mistake. It looks to them like a gross miscarriage of justice. In fact, they feel that the cross is actually a bit of an embarrassment in the Christian message. Then still other people think about the cross intellectually. Uh, They might have read one or two Christian books. Uh, They'd started to understand something about what theologians call the atonement. And that's a marvelous thing to be doing, by the way, especially at this time of year. But when they look at the cross and when they read the passage we're looking at this morning, are they saying with Isaac Watts, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride? Friends, too often I fear the answer is no, they don't. Now, in our series, we've arrived at uh, what is known as the Passion. And uh, in this part of the book, John is inviting you and me to consider the death of Jesus personally. So the question he's asking is, what does this mean for you? When you read this, do you feel anything? And how do you respond to it? To wake us up, John gives us four perspectives on the crucifixion. And when we put them together, it's impossible, I suggest, for us to think about the cross purely in aesthetic, sentimental, or intellectual terms. And instead, we find that it actually commands our awe and our gratitude. Well, see if you agree with me as we come to the first perspective which John puts before us, which is that Jesus was crucified as a criminal. He was crucified as a criminal. Come with me to verse 16 where we read, So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Now, friends, Immediately, we're wrestling with a problem here. Do you remember when Jesus was arrested in the garden? uh, He proved that any number of soldiers were no match for him. Do you remember that he, he just spoke a word? An entire battalion fell powerless at his feet. And we said at the time that that's no surprise because in John's presentation, we've been shown that in every respect... Jesus is God. So John begins his book, you remember, by saying about Jesus, in him was life. So the only reason that these soldiers in chapter 19 are even breathing is because Jesus has given them life. But here, Jesus actually allows the soldiers to take charge of him. And what follows is an even bigger surprise because we read that Jesus carries his own cross. 
Now, I need to tell you that in the Roman Empire, it was the custom only for condemned criminals to carry the cross to the place of execution. It was actually just part of their public humiliation. But do you remember two weeks ago, we saw that on three occasions, the most senior legal opinion said that Jesus was innocent. Pilate could find no basis for a charge against him. And yet here, the perfectly innocent Jesus carries his own cross as a condemned criminal. And John gives us an important extra insight into the depth of that humiliation. Because in verse 17, it's just a little phrase, but it's very important. He says, Jesus went out, meaning he went outside the walls of Jerusalem. And that, you see, is because the religious leaders considered Jesus to be too unclean, too unworthy to be crucified in the walls of the holy city, especially during the Passover. Now, you might look at that and say, well, that's sad, but, you know, so what? Does that have anything to say to you and me this morning? To find the answer, please keep one finger in John 19 and turn on in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And while you're turning there, let me remind you that in the Old Testament, God gave detailed instructions for the way that sin was to be dealt with. And the background to this is that once a year, On the Day of Atonement, a bull and a goat would be sacrificed and the high priest was to take their blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the ark. And then the bodies of the animals which had been sacrificed would be burned outside the camp. Now, this is Hebrews' comment on what that ritual was really all about. Verse 11. Hebrews 13, verse 11. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here, we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. Now, Hebrews there is teaching us two things. First, if you're not yet a Christian, know this. Whatever you've done, however terrible, whatever you think you deserve from Almighty God for your past life, Jesus can make you fit to stand in the presence of God. He can make you holy through his blood. That is actually an extraordinary thought, and it will take you the rest of your life to understand it. But as you read that Jesus went outside the city to be crucified, you're meant to realize 
that Jesus has suffered the ultimate disgrace for you. And so the implicit question is, what are you going to do with that? The second thing Hebrews is teaching is that if you are a Christian, notice the command in verse 13. Let us go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. Now friends, some of us never seem to get beyond talking about sharing the gospel. We know that Jesus expects us to do it, but so often the fear of the damage that it might do to our uh, reputation, it gets in the way, doesn't it? The disgrace is too much for us. But Hebrews is saying that if I allow that to become a permanent obstacle, if I never get beyond just thinking about sharing the gospel, well, perhaps I never really understood that the disgrace and humiliation which Jesus suffered 2,000 years ago were actually mine. Because Jesus was crucified as a criminal in our place. Well, please come back to chapter 19 of John's Gospel, because the second perspective that John gives us is that Jesus was crucified as a king. He was crucified as a criminal. He was crucified as a king. Verse 19, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Now, John doesn't actually tell us what Pilate's motive was in doing this. Um, It certainly provoked a very angry response from the Jewish religious authorities, as you can see in verse 21. Maybe that was Pilate's intention. But friends, this is another example of something we've seen before. Because John sometimes shows us a person in authority who is fundamentally hostile to the things of God, speaking on God's behalf without realizing it. Now that's what Pilate's doing here. The Gospels consistently present Jesus as a king. So in the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that when Jesus was born, do you remember, the wise men came and they said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. And then again, barely a week before his death, when Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, do you remember the people hailed him as the king of Israel? John 12, verse 13. And then when he was being cross-examined by Pontius Pilate, Jesus himself said to Pilate, you are right in saying, I am a king. John 18, verse 37. But the problem is that in the passage we're looking at this morning, Jesus doesn't actually look like a king at all. 
He's been flogged. He's been beaten. He's had a crown of thorns rammed down on his head. His body is bloody and it's bruised. And he's nailed to a cross, which was the most shameful form of execution in the ancient world. Kings aren't meant to die like that. So God works through Pilate's sign to remind us who it is that's actually hanging there. And to make sure that no one would miss it, the sign is translated into Aramaic. Well, actually, in the original, it says Hebrew, not Aramaic. It was translated into Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And you see, everybody in Jerusalem could speak one or more of those languages. Whatever Pilate meant by his sign, we know what God means. Because you see, that sign is a proclamation of the gospel to all people. It's saying this king dies to bring men and women back into the family of God. And the question that God is asking through Pilate's sign is, have you ever crowned Jesus as the king in your life? You might say to yourself, well, what on earth does that mean, Simon? How do I crown Jesus as king? Well, think with me for a moment about those languages on Pilate's sign. Because together they represented all the important sectors of human experience. Hebrew, for example, was the language of religion. In the first century, men and women were as desperate in their search for truth as men and, as men and women are today. And then, as now, the religious world was, is actually a chaotic jungle of many different spiritual beliefs. But you remember, don't you, that Jesus said, he alone is the truth. So King Jesus calls out from the cross to all of the lost millions following their empty gods and offers them what no other religion can ever offer. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who bow before him and accept his death in their place. So that is how you crown Jesus as king in your life. What about the other two languages? Latin was the language of government, law, and business. Now today, in most parts of the world, the church seems to have taken a step back from the world of business and politics. That's a shame because Christ claims that world as his own as well. And through the lives of those who surrender to his kingship, who commit themselves to obeying him, Jesus brings the salt and light of gospel truth to every area of public life. So this week I was interested to read an article about the largest food producing company in the United States. Um, it was founded by a Christian in 1935 
and today it employs 140,000 people. From their website, it's perfectly clear that the gospel shapes the way the leadership run the business. Because, for example, they have a team of full-time chaplains on the payroll who are there to provide pastoral care and counselling to all their employees at all their production facilities. Now imagine that. What a witness to the authority of Christ in the world of business. And then what about Greek? Well, Greek was the language of culture. Uh, the Greeks were famous for their ideas and for their art. And the world of culture is one that Christ claims no less than anything else. And one writer explains what that means. Quote, he says, human creativity is one of God's gifts. If we bring our creative gifts and lay them at his feet, Jesus will enrich them and make them the vehicle of his praise. Let me give you an example. On the screen is a famous painting by a, a man called Holman Hunt. Hunt was a Christian, and his painting is a terrific example of what we're talking about. It shows Jesus working in the carpenter's shop in Nazareth before he began his public ministry. And uh, you can see there Jesus is stretching out his arms after sawing some wood. And can you see that the shadow of his outstretched arms falls on a wooden rack at the back of the shop, creating a shadow of death, which is actually the title of the painting. But the real stroke of genius in the painting is that Mary, on the left-hand side of the canvas, is seen to be gazing up at the shadow while her hands, have a careful look, are in a box. And in that box are the gifts which the wise men brought when they came to worship King Jesus, back in Matthew's Gospel, at his birth. You see, Holman Hunt realized that we will never, never, never understand the cross unless we see it as the place where Jesus was crucified as our King. Well, the third perspective, we can take the picture down now, the third perspective John gives us is that Jesus was crucified as a man. He was crucified as a criminal. He was crucified as a king. He was crucified as a man. Now, I don't know how you felt when Alice was reading the passage, but it seems rather odd at first sight that John would devote so much valuable manuscript space to describing the division of Jesus' clothing between the soldiers and that strange decision to cast lots for the undergarment. I mean, it looks like such an insignificant detail, doesn't it? What's the point? Well, in verse 24, John gives us an important clue that opens up 
an absolutely vital perspective. Verse 24b, he says, This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And you'll notice there's a footnote at the bottom of the page which tells you that that is a quotation from Psalm 22. So keep one finger, please, in John 19 and turn back in your Bible to Psalm 22. I'm sure some of you know this is a prayer that was written by King David about a thousand years before Jesus was born. The very first verse of the psalm gives us the context. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? And the other gospel writers tell us that verse 1 was shouted by Jesus from the cross. But I want us to pick the prayer up at verse 15. Cast your eye down to verse 15, where the psalmist cries out, My strength is dried up like a pot's herd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now, friends, wherever you stand on Christian things this morning, it is astonishing, isn't it, to find such an amazingly detailed description of Jesus' experience on the cross, written centuries before it happened. So notice the, the man's terrible thirst and the approach of death in verse 15. Uh, you've got there also his pierced hands and feet in verse 16. The staring of the hostile onlookers as he feels his bones racked with pain, verse 17. And then there is the, the division of his clothing, his garments, by lot, in verse 18. Now, friends, that is an absolutely vital insight into what the Lord Jesus was going through as he hung there on the cross. Why is that important? It's important because you and I can be so easily deceived into thinking that because Jesus is God, that he didn't really suffer on the cross. It was kind of a magic trick. But no, Psalm 22 shows us the agonies of the death of Jesus in three dimensions. First, Jesus suffered greater spiritual agony than any of us will ever experience. His fellowship with the Father had never been broken, but here the Father turns his face away. Second, he suffered the appalling physical agony that goes with crucifixion. A terrible thirst, every bone racked with pain. And uh, Jesus wasn't immune from any of that excruciating torment. 
And he then suffered also the emotional agony of being despised and hated by the very people he came to save. Well, keep all of that in mind as we come back to John 19, because here we find something absolutely remarkable with a tremendous application for you and me this morning. You see, I think to us it's inconceivable, isn't it, that in the face of such extreme suffering that Jesus could possibly be thinking about anybody else other than himself. Isn't that right? Look at verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Notice there that Jesus addresses Mary as dear woman, not dear mother. Mary had no special inside track with Jesus. She's dear woman to him, and she's got to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord, just like everybody else. But in the midst of his own suffering, Jesus provides for Mary for the rest of her earthly life. You can't miss, can you, that the love and the concern that Jesus has, just when you would least expect it. In 1995, the late Princess Diana gave an interview on television. Um, Her marriage at that point was in tatters. And at one point in the interview, she said this, the greatest disease in the world is the disease of being unloved. And I think she was probably right. But can I say to you this morning that the cross tells us that this is a disease from which none of us ever need to suffer. Because at the very heart of the universe is someone who knows all about our pain and our sorrow. He's experienced the very worst of it And he loves us with an everlasting care that matches our every need. Jesus was crucified as a man. And lastly, Jesus was crucified as a saviour. Verse 28. Later, knowing all that was now completed, sorry, that all was now completed, And so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Jesus only allows himself to drink when he knows that everything's been accomplished according to God's will, the Father's will. Um, His death has been public and his sufferings have been shown to be appallingly real. His thirst is a very important detail. Because elsewhere, the Bible associates a violent thirst with the torment of hell. The point the Bible is making is that anybody who doesn't know Jesus is spiritually thirsty. And that thirst just goes on growing and becoming more and more violent 
until hell itself becomes an experience of desperate thirst that can never be quenched. But you see here, friends, Jesus was thirsty so that he could give you and I the water of life to satisfy our thirst now and forever. And then finally, just before he dies, Jesus says in verse 30, it is finished. Just one word in the original language. And uh, Jesus doesn't just whisper it under his breath. He actually shouts it out from the cross. What does he mean? What has he finished? Well, quite simply this. He's saying that he has lived the life we should have lived, a perfectly sinless life. And he's died the death we should have died. And the reason that he says it is finished is because there is absolutely nothing that you and I can do to add to what he's already done for us. All that's left for us to do is to come to him and say, thank you, Lord Jesus, you did it for me. Well, that's what the cross of Christ means to me. What about you? Let's pray. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving up your Son to death on a cross in our place. Because of his death, we have a new family, new life, new hope. Please help us to live in the power of this new life and to go out of our way to share the amazing news of Good Friday with others. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.